Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, to wear a mask or not wear a mask? I think you should. We'll tell you how you do it. Also, China is being accused of predatory economic policies, military buildups, and human rights violations. Anything new there? And everything has changed COVID-19, including sports. What does all this mean for the Grey Cup? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Ahmad Khalid, a faculty member in human and social sciences, health policy advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Ahmad, thanks so much again. Hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. Same to you. Uh, as we've seen a direction on masks and in, in such, uh, again, I think it's just important to focus on the latest information that we have rather than second guessing where we are. Uh, uh, but an interesting uh, article, an interesting point came out from the Canadian Medical Association today saying that if we're going to continue to open up, uh, we got to do more testing and, and tracing and that apparently the Canadian government, and I might, I may be a little off on my numbers here, but have the capacity to test like 60,000, six zero, 60,000 a day. And we're doing much, much less than that. Do we, do we know why, although they say we can test, we're just not getting them done? Well, I think it's twofold. I think, A, we need to make sure the testing kits are available and B, that we have enough people to actually provide the test. So it's a two, two-fold problem. So I think the more we sort of amp up our ability to test more people, the better we are at COVID-19. And that's science. So we know from other countries that we've learned from where the situation has is starting to resolve. But the more you test, the better you are at contact tracing, isolating individuals, and the lower the number of cases. Look at New Zealand, for example. Uh, look at uh, other parts of the world that have been able to do that. And they have shown remarkable results. And the hope is that Canada will do the same. So what are those other countries doing in their process of testing that allows them to get more done than we are? Is it just our system's not up to capacity? It's not nimble enough at this point to handle this? I think it is nimble. I think what they've been able to do is getting creative about how they test. So we see countries like the United Arab Emirates, they're doing drive-through testing. So people can drive through through their car uh, at certain pit stops throughout the city, uh, they're able to get tested. We are seeing an improvement, Scott. Uh, we've announced last week that the federal government is testing anybody, uh, recommending testing anybody who show, who's showing symptoms. That wasn't the policy before. As you remember, it was more specific symptoms for a specific duration that we're testing people. Now, anybody that shows any symptoms can get tested. The question remains, how fast and how easy can they get tested? Uh, the CMA also said that we're not ready for a second wave if that was to happen. We certainly were for the first. Your thoughts on this? I think that uh, whether we're prepared for a second wave or not all depends on the numbers that we will see. So we're seeing that we're, we're amping up our public health interventions by recommending everybody to wear a face mask uh, within when they cannot maintain a two-meter distance. So to your earlier point about face masks, I know it's been the hottest debate question coming out of COVID-19. It doesn't seem to want to die, but I think that policy is still the same, which is that wear a face mask when you cannot maintain a two-meter distance. I wish that we made that clear from the beginning. I don't think that was made exceptionally clear. Uh, I think in, on the terms of the second wave, it all depends on the numbers and how good people are at continuing to practice social distancing. Uh, we remember at the beginning that um, some thought or uh, our officials thought that this necessarily wasn't necessary. And, and I'm asking this question because listeners want to know. So why is it necessary now? What do we know different? 
I'm glad you asked that, Scott. That what's different now is that we're opening things up. So I just want to be clear with everybody because I understand the frustration that's happening, including myself, with, with the back and forward on face masks. The policy has always been the same. If you're gonna, you are a higher risk of COVID-19, and by that I mean you're exposing yourself to more number of people, you're working with elderly population, with our priority groups, then please do wear a face mask. The reason why you're now seeing it resurface is because simply we're opening things up, so you're more likely to be in places where a two-meter distance will not be possible, and therefore you need to wear it. And finally, we have to remind everybody that some businesses are taking it on their own to make that rule. So you might have to go to Costco, for example, and you won't be allowed entry without a face mask. So my advice to everybody is so that if you have it, it doesn't have to be a surgical mask. Obviously, it could be a cloth. Keep it in your bag. Keep it in your pocket. And if you're not comfortable wearing it and you're not exposed to a higher risk, then don't wear it. But just be prepared for the stores or businesses that you will go to where they will require you to wear one. Uh, most stores, although they, again, they've done a lot to keep us two meters apart, it still can be difficult. So would you recommend if you're going into a store, grocery, what have you, that you, you do have one? Yes, and we're seeing more and more stores in, uh, that are actually supplying them. So uh, we got reports today that Nordstrom stores are providing them to all customers, which is interesting. We know Uber, for example, now is mandating that you wear them. You cannot take an Uber without a face mask. The question remains, Scott, who's providing them and do we have enough? Uh, we know that the prices of face masks are so high uh, in some stores. That's why we're recommending using cloths and other types of bandanas to cover your face if you don't have access to a face mask. Uh, and you brought up that point about it doesn't necessarily have to be a, 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 a medical type of mask. It can be a non-medical type of mask. So are we to arrive at the conclusion from that that anything is better than nothing? Correct. And, and the recommendation actually is to not wear a medical mask to save those for our healthcare providers. If you have access to one, great. There's also the concern that there are in shortage, the medical masks, and that they are expensive. So the recommendations from public health agency is to wear a non-medical face mask when maintaining a two-meter distance is not possible. What about if someone has medical or access to medical supplies, uh, these face masks that have expired? And here's an anecdotal uh, situation. Someone I know who had uh, was doing work on the house, had N95s. They've since all expired, expired. but is that person, should that person at least wear that, even though it has? I mean, they're not taking away from the medical community. Is that better than nothing? Yes, because it's still providing a physical barrier, right? And that's the whole point of this. This is not to, uh, some high-tech technology. All it's doing is a physical barrier preventing the air droplets from tra- transmitting from one person to another. So, yes, they can wear it. But we also, I think what's really key to bring up here is that please don't judge others who don't wear it because we're so concerned that there are people who have asthma uh, yeah. and are on the spectrum are unable to wear it, Scott, and we need to be very careful culturally to not judge people for not being able to wear it, especially children. That's a very valid point, and I did read the report today that uh, if you have asthma, this is not necessarily the best thing for you to do. Maybe want to elaborate on that? What's the deal with asthma and masks? Sure. So asthmatic patients sometimes can have difficulty breathing, and putting the mask on can actually make it worse. So we're asking people with asthmatic patients to try it at home first, uh, for you know, 20 minutes or so to see how it fits on them if they can still breathe normally. But also, Scott, children on the spectrum, so autistic children, uh, they that can aggravate them and make it very difficult for them to cope. And so we're really conscious of making sure mm. that people don't 
uh, give judgment on people that are not able to wear it. Wow, it is such a balance and a fine line. Your Absolutely. thoughts on where we are as we're into the mid uh, middle of the week of, of the first stage of opening. We're also seeing these uh, concerns come out in regard to masks and the, and the other questions that you know often happen when we step outside the doorstep. We did talk earlier that you are going to see uh, more cases as testing increases and as we go out a slight second wave. Your thoughts on where we are now? I am optimistic. I think that where we were and where we are is, is, is a much better place now. We're talking about reopening, which is something so re- exciting. We have reopened many places. We're continuing on those progress. That, to me, tells me that we're going to get some back of normal life as we knew it. We just need to be careful that this does not mean let's just pretend like nothing has ever happened. COVID is still real. The, the risk is still out there. Practice your own risk mitigation strategies to think about who you surround yourself with and where you go. Uh, and let's just keep, you know, aiming forward so that we can come to a point where we have a little bit more and more of normal life. And I guess it's important to remember that one size doesn't fit all here. Absolutely, it does not. And that's what the pandemic has taught us all, depending on the community you live in. You know, we could talk about urban settings like downtown Toronto or downtown Hamilton. That plays very differently in rural areas. Uh, and so, yeah, it is very context specific and it is person specific. So educate yourself about what the evidence is and then make your own risk, uh, keeping in mind others. I think that's the best message to give out. Uh, more great advice from Dr. Ahmad Khalid, faculty member, human and social sciences, health policy advisor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Ahmad, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you. So how do you know if your mask is re-entry ready? Do you go buy one? Do you make your own? Jim Gardner is the founder of Thoughtful Design Store. They repurpose from making rugby shirts to masks and hospital gowns and is with us now. Jim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, Thanks for the time uh, being here and hope you are doing well. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Yes, doing well uh, in the factory, making sure production is rolling smoothly. So you're, you're strictly going, you've gone from rugby shirts to masks and gowns. Is that accurate? We have, yes. Yeah, we uh, applied for a medical license when the company was shut down for the first week. And then when the premier Ford asked for the industry to step up, we did and, and knew that we had the, had the capabilities to design and develop something really cool uh, and effective. So, so we did that. So where are your masks going specifically? Are they going to medical uh, frontline workers? No. So ours are going more, we are selling to healthcare professionals, but not, right. uh, not the N95 mask. Which so this are, is for everybody uh, else, basically. Correct. Correct. But we do have a lot of healthcare homes and whatnot purchasing from us as well. Um, and we're able to customize for businesses. So ours are, we feel as good, uh, but they're not deemed medical because they are reusable, which uh, a medical mask uh, has to be disposable. And can the public get these masks or are these companies various things? To, how, how do you go about getting one of your masks? So our masks are sold on, on our web store. It's right. the thoughtfuldesignstore.com, and we have a few really cool designs on there. Um, and the one thing that really separates our masks is the filtration system that we use on them. And tell us about that. So we, we actually have uh, three layers of fabric, and we have a HEPA filter, which is, uh, as you know, in your home, you have a, mm-hmm. a furnace that uh, filters out the particulates from the air, and our mask has that very similar filter. It's actually a locally produced filter, 
uh, that is sandwiched between, between the two layers and really gives you the extra protection against the droplets in the air. So if somebody is perhaps purchasing one of yours or looking for something else to buy, should you get one, do you think, that is like a typical mask that's one time? Should you get something you can reuse? And, and what are some of the keys that you should be looking for when buying something that is reusable? Well, I think that the N95 should be for the frontline workers, to be honest. And, and, and they should, you know, they have their certain protocol. They have to dispose of them. Those that are going to the supermarkets and, and, and as the normals uh, coming, the new normals coming uh, open to us, as we're hearing from the premier from day to day and the prime ministers, uh, it is highly recommended to wear masks. So, it, to me, as, as a consumer and you know going out, I feel a lot more protected and uh, wearing a mask that is uh, again reusable and looks really good too. So, I like to add that. So give us a little rundown on your masks. What would be the starting price? Our, we sell them in three packs on our, right. on our site. So our, our, they average around $15 a mask, and we sell them in, in three packs. And how long would one of those last before you should discard it and start a new one? Well, we did the testing, and up to 15 washes is what we got up to, and they held up uh, very, very well. We didn't go beyond that, um, but yeah, they're going to last you a very long time. Um, again, our testing uh, only went to 15 washes, and, and we didn't have any breakdown of the materials or the masks or the colors uh, in anything that, that we did. So we're very confident these are going to last you uh, months at a time. Uh, the doctor we were talking to, the experts we've been talking to have been saying that, you know, anything is better than nothing. What about those that are making their own? I mean, obviously, you're, you've are you got an enterprise here, but what about those who are trying to make their own? Is there something we should be looking for, not doing or doing? Well, I think people that are making uh, just out of a, a cloth mask, I think, you know, as, as the doctor said, it, it is better than nothing. Uh, and then there are those that are putting in coffee filters and whatnot, um, you know, uh, we wanted to do the best that we could with the resources available. So we feel that a HEPA filter is the best um, for what we were able to do. So, yeah, we, we feel that the, the more filtration you can get in that mask, the better. But we know that not everyone has those means to do that. Um, and for us, we wanted to do the, the best quality. We all know this isn't going to end anytime soon. Is this another business opportunity? Could you have ever predicted this? Not at all, Scott. We were, uh, you know, as it, we sell mostly in the college and university markets. Um, where uh, my partner, Barbarian Sportswear, uh, make these in, in, in Kitchener. And yeah, the, you know, we, we're full on selling to colleges in March and then we're shut down for a week to 10 days and then, we piv- you know, pivoted our, our business. So never did we in our wildest dreams uh, earlier this year think that we were going to, you know, be making masks pretty well. Uh, 100% of the time, and, and here we are. So there is business opportunities, I am sure, uh, and we're lucky to have, uh, we're employing over half our staff again, and we, we keep adding to that number, uh, and it's really nice to, to be able to, to have a, uh, a good news local production story that, uh, that, that we feel is doing a great job. We've got some great feedback from you know, health line workers or health workers and the public that really like what we're doing. So it's, All right. it's, it's a good feeling. Check out the website, Thoughtful Design Store. Jim Gardner has been the founder and turning a lemon into lemonade. Jim, congratulations. Good luck to you. Thanks for the time.
Thank you, Scott. Obviously, as uh, we start to open up the province with Stage 1, and we're seeing this go on in, in various uh, jurisdictions across the country, uh, the concern is, will there be a second wave and having enough testing for all of this? But as well, one of the reasons we're trying to do this is because economically we've put the world on hold for the last couple of months, and we simply have to get things moving again. Uh, we've certainly heard and seen what industries are the most vulnerable to COVID-19, including retail and and restaurants and, and such, and, and those where, uh, you know, a social gathering uh, would ensue. And, and, and obviously they have been hurt and hit extremely hard. But as we come out the back end of COVID-19, are there jobs that will be in demand? Are there opportunities here? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Group School of Business, McVasta University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm fine, thank you. Glad to be with you. We've certainly heard lots about uh, the industries that are hurting, whether it's travel, uh, airlines, uh, hospitality, retail, and, and such Uh even sporting events, I guess, for that matter. Uh, what about once we come out the other end of this? Where are the jobs going to be? Are, is there going to be opportunity here for people? Mm-hmm. So let me come at this in two different ways, if you don't mind. Um, while we've seen the unemployment rate get to 13%, and, and I actually think it's more like 17.5% because we've got these people who are furloughed, I think you've got to remember that most of the furloughed people, at least this is the government's plan, they want them to go back to the job they had before. So if you worked in a bar, if you worked in a restaurant, no, the restaurant shut down. They can't do day-to-day service at the moment. But when they get back to doing something like that, the hope is that you will go back. And so that's plan A. Plan B would be either because you've been furloughed and you you'd suddenly discover you're kind of a low person on the totem pole, or you're looking for something that maybe has got more opportunity to it and less susceptible to this, where are those job opportunities? And, of course, the first one that comes to mind is health care. Uh, we have rediscovered, I think, the great value of health care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are it's the one area, in fact, that we've seen virtually no job losses in during these last two months. And so if you're looking and you're planning for the future, switching into something with health care. And then safety and security comes to mind as well. You know, I I was recently at a grocery store, and suddenly there was a job that was never there before. That was somebody to sanitize the carts as I bring them back or take one from them. There never used to be a person sitting there doing that. Now, uh, when you go to work, there might be a person standing to take your temperature when you enter or to check your oxygen levels. I was never, that never existed at McMaster before, but that might be part of the new normal on the other end. And then the third thing, of course, that comes to mind is is anything to deal with the good old-fashioned Internet here. As uh, you and I have maybe turned away a bit from going to stores, physical brick-and-mortar retail, something that has certainly gained in popularity is the online world. Whether that is Shopify, which helps create virtual stores for people, it gives you that virtual storefront, or it's somebody in the order fulfillment side working at warehouses to pack boxes that then get delivered to your homes, those will certainly be areas that will be as popular if ever, if not more so, on the other end of COVID-19. Uh, you talked about how this is going to take time to, and we have talked many times about how this is going to take time to uh, restart the economy and get back to where we were. Um, and, and, you know, used uh, restaurants as an example. Eventually, they will all open. Will we see scenarios where that will just take too long or too, uh, uh, too long a length of time that people will just give up and go on and move on to something else? We'll just see industry, a certain business, certain types that will just go the way of the dodo bird. 
Well, uh, again, I think the answer is going to be yes, but it's going to be, again, on two fronts. Uh, we're already seeing signs that some retail stores that were not 100% healthy before COVID-19 hit are just not able to keep going no matter how much support you're giving them. Today, for instance, in the news uh, of all places, Victoria's Secrets, uh, the lingerie mm. shop is looking at closing 250 locations. Um, we know that uh, Saks Fifth Avenue is in some trouble. Neiman Marcus is in some trouble. Uh, probably Hudson's Bay is in a bit of trouble. Big, big stores with virtually nobody going into them. I just don't know how long you can go that way. So, uh, one hand, some of the companies where you have been furloughed from, those furloughs may turn into actually terminations because the company disappears. But the other side of this, which is I think is the, the more, if you will, upbeat side of this, is people just saying, I'm tired of this. I've been sitting here for two months. I might have to wait two more months. I, I don't want to do this. Yeah, thank government. Thank you for the CERB payment. And and the $2,000, but I, I need to be more active. And so, yes, I think there will be people, if they hear of opportunities and they like the, the possibility of that work, will switch. Uh, it is interesting when I talk about health care, I think a lot of people will concede that that's an area where there will be employment in the future, certainly with an aging population, but it does take a, a special kind of person to work in that industry, hmm. someone who can be emotionally connected to the people they're treating and yet not so emotionally connected that if their health does turn and go in the wrong direction that they'll be devastated because of it. Healthcare is a great opportunity, but it isn't just for everybody. Good point. Uh, you talked about those that are lucky enough to be working from home right now and, and have been working remotely. When do you think we're going to see those people, us, get back to work? Mm-hmm. Get back to the, we're all, I guess we're all working, but get back to the place of business. Yeah, get back, as we say, to normal. Well, Scott, I think a couple of things are happening here. Certainly businesses are discovering and individuals are discovering that there is work that can be done from home. Maybe people in the past had been afraid to telework or, or weren't certain how their employer would react to it. I, I know there are employers who have discovered that, amazingly, work from home seems to keep things going. What we haven't heard yet is whether people feel good about working from home. And what I mean by that is, at least for me, I have a place of employment at the university, and when the end of the day comes, I can leave my troubles there and come home, and home is my refuge. Hmm. I don't have to connect to email. I don't have to deal with student problems. I'm not really paid to be employed 24 hours a day. I can turn it off. Whereas when I'm working from home, then, you know, I'm, I, I'm not really 100% at my job. I'm 90%. The dog comes up. The kitty comes up. The <laughs> child needs you for a moment, and you divert. Then you go back, uh, you know, it, it, and then, therefore, you feel obligated to keep working. Then when do you ever stop working? Mm. I think this could be a downside. It's always been a downside to telework and working from home. But I just think going forward, there's going to be more options. I don't think companies are going to move 100% to a world of work at home, and we're going to shut down our our prime locations and keep doing this as the new normal. But I think now people are going to discover they've got more options and, and they'll figure out the balancing point as they go forward. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of our favorite guests, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. A new White House report that was issued yesterday attacked China for its predatory economic policies, its military buildup, uh, human rights violations, and disinformation uh, campaigns. To talk more about all of this, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. He is with us now. As always, Elliot, thanks so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. 
I am. Thank you, uh, Scott. And I hope uh, you and everyone else is doing the right kinds of sheltering at home and social distancing and being thoughtful about others. That's a very, very well put, Elliot. Uh, as we start to head down the backside of this curve, uh, many are looking to uh, to make sure this never happens again and how we got to where we are. We've certainly talked about this uh, many times. Uh, obviously, as we've talked uh, many times about, is is the po- the politics that that gets involved here and, and confuses uh, the issue. Uh, but certainly, a twenty page report coming out from the United States, basically saying, uh, "Here's a quote: China's been ruled by a brutal authoritarian regime, a communist regime, since 1949. For several decades, we thought the regime would become more like us through trade, scientific exchange, diplomatic outreach, letting them into the World Trade Organization as a developed." nation that didn't happen he said we greatly underestimated the degree to which beijing is ideologically and politically hostile to free nations the whole world is waking up to that fact elliot are we there yet uh, what what is your thoughts on the statement from uh, the white house it's actually from mike pompeo which is yeah mike pompeo mm-hmm. the, the uh I mean, through the White House, but it's Mike Pompeo, so correct, but, but Mike Pompeo is, is becoming the point man on this, and also, reciprocally, it's uh, when China is attacking the U.S., it's, they're not attacking Trump, they're attacking Pompeo. So that gives a little bit of wiggle room for the two top leaders, if they so choose, uh, to climb down or to, to reorient. But what's becoming clear uh, is that politics are now going to overwhelm our discussion of a pandemic that's a threat to the globe. Are we going to be able to come up with sensible, um, realistic, internationally coordinated activity based on what we know scientifically or not? And as this becomes increasingly a, uh, an artifact of politics, then the possibility that we will, in fact, grapple with this in a realistic way and in a transparent way by all parties, that does diminish. That being said, what Pompeo said and what I just read, um, how do you digest that? Is he not right? Yes. Uh, a whole range of reactions here. First of all, one of the things that I think you and I have talked about for some time, ever since the arrest of the two Michaels, which seems like a long time ago, and it was, and they are still held under terrible conditions in China, is that China's come into focus, and as it comes into focus, uh, opinion goes from vague and positive to much clearer and much more negative, so that we just had a recent poll uh, saying something to the effect that 86% of Canadians now say, we don't trust what China says about the virus. So we are in a situation where we must have an international response and coordination and transparency, but we have every reason to think that China has been, in fact, not been transparent, has not been cooperative, and that, in fact, is trying to use this uh, crisis to its advantage in saying, we've handled it well, look at our superiority as a system, and uh, uh, don't pay attention to those other guys, and the other guys are saying, you know, that's us <laughs> saying, look what you've done at home. You've silenced the people who were pointing out this was a crisis. You've arrested doctors. Uh, you've let people die. Uh, this crisis came out of China, and China is responsible for its spread. We have a, 
we have a situation where China does remember. Let's let's do on the one hand, on the other hand, in, in a way that I don't think's been focused on much. On the on the one hand, China has indeed released the genome so that the whole world scientifically could examine it and start to uh, scramble to come up with vaccines and preventatives, and that was done fairly early, and not transparently, but fairly early. On the other hand, we're now hearing from incredible cybersecurity people that China is using their cyber forces to try to um, infiltrate the foreign firms that are coming up with the possibility of vaccines. So you have a loop there. Of you can't live without them because they yep. are so important for the also the supply chains. Uh, you, you want a mask? Where are you going to get it from? And uh, ventilators? Oh, sure. Uh, at the same time, they are clearly not a uh, a uh, respectable and reliable international actor. If I could put that gently. Well, basically, what you said is they supplied the disease, they supply the medical facilities to get over it, and then possibly the vaccine. Yes, and and. Uh, in doing so, they may well be basically spying on the places that are doing the research on the vaccine in order to be the first ones to come up with it and claim the credit uh, and also you know, play a role, a constructive role, saying, look, the U.S. is a failure, we are a success. So we are into a situation now of, of a, maybe a transformative more moment in contemporary international relations where China is truly an emerging power. And there's other aspects of that I'd like to discuss. But they are truly an emerging power. At the same time, they are not uh, coming over as a responsible power at a time of crisis. And and this gets us into a different level and layer. Now both the U.S. and China are using this for their domestic politics in terms of maintenance of the, of the government of the day, the regime of the day. So on the one hand... The, Clearly, this is the Communist Party of China, and they bear bear a lot of culpability, certainly in all kinds of ways. And at the same, and uh, the regime was questioned. I think you and I talked about it, or perhaps it was with Bill in the morning that we talked about: Is this going to be the the moment when the regime is questioned? It's, it's once you claim all kinds of uh, full authority, then you bear the responsibility. And was Xi Jinping in trouble? Because his own country was so badly affected. And he seems to be weathering that at home through the usual means of both oppression and um, propaganda. But the other side of that is the China question is becoming central to the re-election hopes of Donald Trump. Yeah. Keep, keeping in mind, uh, Scott, that right now the U.S. is by far the largest plague country on Earth. They lead the world in, in the numbers. Uh, although you can question numbers elsewhere, but uh, they are leading the world. And uh, how do you get out from that? The economy has crashed. You didn't take the actions necessary, et cetera. Well, let's blame somebody else. Let's make China a boogeyman, and therefore we look good. This is not a way out of a crisis. Uh, that being said, will we fall for that? Will we be able to decipher? Will Canadians of the world be able to decipher between what is politics and, and what is reality? You know, I mean, it gets to the it gets to the point where if Donald Trump says it, then nobody believes it because Donald Trump rarely tells the truth. So now all of a sudden, if he does hit hit on something that says, you know, China, we should be looking at, is the rest of the world going to say, no, China's our friend? We are in the awkward situation where the U.S. has been cutting itself off from the world. Uh, 
let's stand back a bit and say, okay, where are we in the world? We are, where we are in the world right now is that an emerging power has come across as a tainted source, and the U.S. as the major power that seems to now be deliberately trying to cede leadership in the world to, you know, as a, as a fading influence in the world, is doing its best to, uh, to say, look every place else but us for, for uh, blame. Are we going to get out of this situation with trading relationships intact? Now that we are getting a clearer picture of China, what are we going to do about it? What actions follow from being uh, clear that China is, as Mike Pompeo just described it, when in turn Mike Pompeo is, <laughs> is drawn under question for some of his, re- his actions in firing the, mm-hmm. firing the inspector general that's investigating him. So we are not in a healthy situation in regards to coming out of this on the other side with clarity on international relations, international politics, and most importantly of all, international health. Is China a friend of Canada? I mean, previous to COVID-19, I mean, especially with the statements from people like John McCallum and such, I mean, you know, and I've even heard a journalist say yesterday, this isn't soft diplomacy, this is suck-up diplomacy. Um, That being said, is China our friend? China is China's friend. And they have taken actions which clearly are inimical to a Western democratic ethos, and starting with our own. They are also taking very specific actions against Canada. The artificial arrest of basically the hostage diplomacy they are undertaking, we should not be ignoring. Uh, the fact that they've acted in massive ways on human rights uh, issues, including on the Uyghurs, and there's a, you know, we talked about the two Michaels, but Hussein mm-hmm. Shalil, a Uyghur. Canadian has been in jail for a long time. Um, are they a friend of ours? What about Huawei? We are, uh, and the government's taking a lot of uh, heat on this, we are dithering on whether to say yes or no on Huawei, but they, remember, have a couple of our hostages. And that hostage diplomacy that we are feeling is a pattern around the world. Denmark is, or Sweden has just had a, a taste of it, as has Japan and Korea earlier. So they are not a friend of, of Canada's as a friend. Do we have interest where we have to take them into account? Yes, they are still a huge trading uh, nation. Are we going to come out of this on the other side where Canadians, let me put a, a point on this that I don't think has come out sufficiently. When we decide that the unhealthy globalization of the past has led to not only the rise of populism saying this kind of globalization doesn't work for us, but we also don't have the capacity at home, economic capacity, to produce the most elementary goods for our own safety. We have to rely on China. We're not going to do that again. And the U.S. is saying, we're not going to do that again. And around the world, does that mean that Canadians are willing to pay much higher prices every time they go to a Canadian tire mm-hmm. on all the products currently being made in China? So we are not coming to grips with the reality that we are accepting China as a as less than a friend, but rather more as an adversary. And at the same time, we've erected uh, global chains around the world, which rely on an emerging power like China. Uh, talking, and this is the last question here because we're short on time. But uh, how uh, Huawei's five G? How can anyone in North America take this now? How how does this even warrant a discussion at this point? Yes. Um, <laughs> 
again, they've got the goods, uh, and they did it, uh, if you take a look at what used to be Nortel, they probably did it the old-fashioned way. They ransacked Nortel, gutted it, and then we don't have a champion in this. We can pay a higher cost uh, economically uh, to not put ourselves at risk politically over over the 5G network, but we have to develop that capacity. I, I don't want to conclude without uh, one other uh, aspect of this that hasn't gained attention yet. As mm-hmm. we deal with the situation of an emerging China that's, that is a, uh, an aggressive power and an unreliable partner we are, and a cyber threat to us as well, we are also facing a world where there's a nuclear dimension coming. The U.S. is pulling out after one after the other of the nuclear treaties. Our defense saying we aren't going to get in until China does. They're being left out of that, and we have to bring them in. And China's saying, hey, that's an unequal treaty again. We're not going to do it. So we are into a much more uncertain world, Scott, as a result of what we see in front of us. Hmm. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. And to you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Lots of discussion in regard to the announcement made earlier this week that the school year uh, will be, uh, uh, the loss of the school year will be, uh, that's in school classes, uh, will be delayed right through to the end of the year. And possibly uh, as we hit uh, next September, there will be some changes in how the kids go back to school. Uh, There's also been discussion on whether kids should be making up that time at summer school in order to pick up what they've lost during uh, the COVID-19 and rotating teacher strikes prior to that. Let's bring in Christina Llewellyn, Associate Professor, Social Development Studies, University of Waterloo, and is with us now. Christina, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you, Scott. So uh, is the right move here to, to try to make up for lost time during the summer? Is that the answer? It it is a good question. I'm a parent myself, and I think like any parent, you really worry about a sense of loss for your your children. But I think in this case, we really need to understand that there hasn't been a break. I even heard that in your own introduction, that students have actually been working very hard from home, Mm co-taught by their parents, and that teachers have been working really and doing exhaustive efforts to try and make emergency remote instruction work. Um, and we know this from students because we've actually been hearing in a recent Angus Reid poll when they did a, a survey of 10 to 17-year-olds that they're actually saying they're keeping up with a lot of the learning objectives set out uh, by their teachers. They just don't like emergency remote teaching, and they find they're unmotivated by that form of learning. Uh, it's interesting because I think what my – and I've got a, a, a kid in university – not in university, in post-secondary on their way, uh, and then uh, in elementary as well. Some teachers seem to be more into it than others. There's been situations where they bring in sort of the Zoom-type classroom, and I think the kids really enjoy that. It, you know, it almost seems like a, a part of the exercise or class should be five or ten minutes at the end where the kids can all just talk amongst themselves or be led through the teacher to, to see what, their own do, what they've been doing. It's that connection they seem to really miss. You're absolutely right. So that's the point. The point is connection over curriculum. Um, In the Angus Reid poll as well, the young people were saying that what the problem was is they were really missing their friends. So they're missing those relationships. And those relationships are actually a big part of what happens in the classroom. It's the relationship between the teacher and the student, among the students, and the way they apply that to the environment around them. 
But I think that we do need to be cautious and listen to what educators have been telling us and families that that kind of synchronous learning has a place. There might be a place for that in building connection. But when it comes to actually teaching content, that can be really problematic for some families, especially for families who are juggling work schedules, for those who don't have easy access to technology or Wi-Fi. So there's even been many privacy concerns. So there's a lot of problems in the way of that kind of as a learning method. But when we're talking about connecting, I think teachers are looking at ways in which they can connect with students and connect students to one another. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, most students are still continuing on and, and, you know, in a somewhat stressful situation for them. Then asking them come July or August to get back into school, um, you know, I guess that's assuming that they're not doing anything now. But you think of the stress that they're under now, sending them to school in the summer, won't that just fry them? Right. I, I think I think that that's a real concern. I think one of the major concerns right now is around mental health, but also for educators around a love of learning and learning confidence. And we certainly don't want to break that. Those are the kind of skills and abilities that educators create so well in a classroom environment in order to allow for learning to happen through a creative and active process. And if we hurt those underlying abilities or confidence, then we're in for a really long-term impact. So this, this cannot be about simply getting young people through content. Content is not the purpose of education. You know, mm. if you can't name the prime ministers in order of appearance, you can Google that. So yeah. that's that kind of memorization wrote worksheet learning, which sometimes can be the default when we're in this emergency situation. That's not the point. The point is to restore and educators know how to do this with their learners when they look at prior knowledge and they get back in the classroom. They they know how to address those any kind of learning gaps that might exist. So anything that does happen with respect to summer plans, and I know that those are still emerging for Ontario, really does need to be voluntary, and that is what the message is from the Minister of Education. What can we learn uh, from a teaching perspective from the COVID-19 experience? What can we take away from this, or is it too early? I, I think there's a number of lessons to be learned that we can already see happening. I think one of them has been a recent drive with respect to technology. So one of the myths is that educators don't already use technology. They use technology a lot in the classroom to engage learners. And we know that that's part of 21st century learning. But the idea that you can replicate online through this kind of synchronous remote instruction, that you can replicate what happens in the classroom, we've seen that that's just not the case. Do you really think, think anybody, other... just to interrupt, Christina, do you think anyone mm-hmm. actually thinks this? Because, again, you know, it seems we get into this discussion and did get into this discussion prior to COVID-19. You know, I don't think anybody's looking to replace the experience, but I think just somehow come up with a balance between that in-class teaching and that increased technology and that connectivity. But it seems to be that it's a discussion about one or the other, and, and it shouldn't be that way. Shouldn't it be a balance of both? Yeah, you're right. I think it's become that over the past year with respect to the labor unrest because of the idea of mandatory e-learning without the infrastructure to support that. And then the implication that somehow that is what we're doing right now in this environment, which is online learning. So university professors do conduct online learning and online classes. These are platforms that have been created over a very long time with curriculum designers 
and and with that intention in mind. So I think it's really important to recognize what we're not doing right now is that kind of online learning. It is remote emergency instruction. And there are differences in, in levels of learning with respect to post-secondary and independent adult learners, as well as young people. So I think it's the idea that this is mandatory or somehow this could be a slippery slope towards replacing what happens in the classroom. I think you're quite right. This isn't an either or. Teachers are using technologies in ways that are very important with learning in school. Yeah, I really think we have to meet in the middle in this discussion, and and unfortunately, sometimes that doesn't happen, but hopefully that will be one of the positives that comes out of uh, COVID-19. Christina Llewellyn has been with us, Associate Professor, uh, Professor Social Development Studies, uh, University of Waterloo. Christina, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thanks. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, and uh, as well, talking about the CFL season and changes coming to it. Scott, how are you? I hope you're doing well. I actually have emerged from the, uh, like you have the uh, studio, Scott, or Studio Thompson, whatever you call it. Uh, I have the uh, the basement dungeon down there that I have not emerged from for days, and I'm standing outside, and I must tell you, it's quite glorious. <laughs> You need a window down there, buddy. At least I got a window up here on the first floor. Uh, I am. I have officially become a troll. I just live in the basement and emerge for food every few hours. Hey, I know That's exactly. I know exactly what you mean. All right, so we're seeing uh, sports leagues trying to uh, uh, cope with COVID nineteen and, and put some sort of schedule together. What do we know about the CFL and the upcoming season? What was announced yesterday? Well, uh, what was announced was a lot of optimism, and I hope it's well-placed optimism because we all want to see these seasons go ahead. Uh, what they've said basically is uh, the earliest they could start is September and um, how they would start, who would be in the stands, all that kind of stuff. Nobody knows that that's completely uh, up in the air. There's some other things they announced, but the big thing that they announced, which I actually find fascinating and I, you know, necessity is the mother of invention is the old line. And boy, I, I'm not, I'm thinking I'm not opposed to testing what they're going to say, what they're going to try with the Grey Cup, and maybe make this permanent, though they never will, rather than a host city. So this year it was supposed to be played in Regina. The Rough Riders were supposed to host, and then next year it was going to be Hamilton. It's going to be like the Major League Baseball season or NHL or NBA. Team with the best record who gets to the finals gets to host the game. And, you know, there are I, I see mm-hmm. all the reasons... And all the benefits of having a host city because you can prepare for years in advance and set up the parties and this and that. There is something, I think, that is going to be, if they get this in, that is going to be pretty spectacular about having legitimately a home game for the team that has the best record. And there's a number of things that you can dive into here. First of all, because chances are Hamilton plays in the East. The other teams in the East, by and large, stink. Hamilton Almost certainly, if there's yeah. a season, we'll have the best record. Hamilton could host the Great Cup two years in a row. So why not just? So why not just keep it in place the, the way it is right now? Why why move this to whoever has the best record gets to host it? Why would they just? Why would they make that decision? Well, I think the idea mainly is uh, twofold. One, uh, travel. You don't. We don't know what the travel situation is going to be, and so if you, let's say the Tie Cats get in. Presumably, if you hold it in Hamilton, the vast majority of the people who would buy tickets would be Hamiltonians, and therefore they don't have to travel anywhere. Um, You'll have some people coming in, but it it really, right now, the Grey Cup is a festival, and people fly in from all over the country. 
that part you you eliminate. That's I think that's the biggest reason. And also, I think it is it is this is supposed to be a giant fundraiser as well for the host team. And I think they look at this and go, this may be a little unfair to have awarded the game to Saskatchewan, and then you may not get a fraction of the benefit you're supposed to get from this because we don't really know if there's going to be a game or who's right. going to be in the game or how many fans you can have in the game. So in other words, why even try to present this sort of festival when the host city will end up getting probably burned by it anyway? Right, right. So yeah. you know what? Yeah. We do it where it's the best team, where one of the teams, you're guaranteed to have a home game for one of these teams. Right, right. Let's say that it was Hamilton that hosted. Uh, you know, I've, I have been, I, I don't doubt that when they host the game here next year that it's going to be a sellout. But I have questioned how many everyday Hamiltonians are going to go because the tickets are going to be expensive. If you had the Ticats make it to the Grey Cup this year and you found out a week before, and the tickets suddenly go on sale, and they are not insanely priced because we want to make sure we sell these tickets, I think you're going to end up with a whole lot of people who otherwise would never get the opportunity to go who would be able to go to a game. Again, assuming you're allowed to have fans in the stands. There are, to me, there are some positives here, Scott, and I'll tell you one other positive about this. For years, for decades now, people have said, well, the real CFL season starts at Labor Day. And it's because there's only nine teams. There's four teams in one division, five in the other. One team misses the playoffs in one division, two teams in the other. You could legitimately start the year going 0-7 or 0-8 and still make it to the Grey Cup if you turn yeah. it around. Well, if you now make it that whoever gets to host is the team that has the best record, that makes every single game along the way important. Mm-hmm. That means that the game that is in the early August is just as important as the game that's in mid-November. And I, and I think there's something to that. I think there's something very beneficial to making every single game must-see and, and crucial for your, your hopes of maybe hosting the championship game. That said, Scott, let's make no mistake. This is not, in all likelihood, this is not going to be the end of the Grey Cup festival situation as we've known it they're going to go back to the old way when this is done i think i'm almost positive but man if this thing could somehow happen and if a season could get going and this could be just an unbelievable success i don't know maybe after a few years you turn around (laughs) after all the games that you've awarded have been played you go hmm you know what else this does this forces every team to be really good or try to be really good, because every year you could potentially host the Grey Cup, and that's a huge amount of money in your pocket. You know, and it, when, they, when they announced two cities this past year, or for the next two years, we everybody thought that was a great idea. Maybe that wasn't such a great idea. Where does this leave Saskatchewan and Hamilton in the future? Say this does go ahead, and the city with... Uh, the best record does get to host this year. This year, does that mean Hamilton does next year, or Saskatchewan does next year, or they leapfrog over? Where does that leave Hamilton and Saskatchewan? So Hamilton is still on on target for 2021. That hasn't changed, and the Regina game that was supposed to be this year is now 2022. So uh, it would have made no sense to then bump Hamilton back a year and move bump right. Regina back a year. I mean, Hamilton's already got all their material being put together and stuff no it's stupid to make them have to change everything um yeah i I don't know so we will see no matter what happens with this experiment if it even does go forward we're still going to see two traditional gray cup games in the next two years 
We will. We will. And and we will we will see, as I say, and I and I, this is part of the reason I'm really hoping that somehow this all can fall into place by November or December, whenever they would have it, and that we don't have to have a situation where you have to be sitting six feet apart and the stadium can only be a fifth full or something like that, because I don't think that would give a real a good sense of how well or not well this idea can work. I, I Look, I've been to... Does that mean we work. break up the box, Jay Boys? I mean, what happens here? This is no. only the same. No, no, no. That, the, no, the Box J boys, potentially, if the game was here, would have even better chance of getting tickets. They'd all be able to get tickets. I've, Scott, I went to the World Series. But the box would be spread But the box would be spread all the way around oh, the stadium. Oh, you mean if, sorry, if there was the, if there was the social distance. Yes. Yeah, yeah, there'd be Box J, K, L, and M boys. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, like, I went to the World Series as a fan back in the 90s when it was with the Jays. Uh, we saw what happened with the Raptors last year. When you play the games in front of the home fans, it is, to me, much more special than playing it in front of a bunch of people who are there to drink beer, but really most of them don't have a strong rooting interest in the game. I, 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 I kind of love the idea, but it, you know, I, I don't think they're going to abandon tradition just for that. But, boy, I, I, I don't think this is the worst plan ever. Well, again, you know, we've seen how what life will be like uh, post-COVID-19. We're starting to see examples of that and how it has changed some things. Could we see sport changing in some way? I mentioned about watching a NASCAR race last night, shortened version of, a lot tighter presentation. Uh, it, you know, for some sports, that might be the future. Did they have to do social distancing in NASCAR and leave like 25 feet between cars? No, 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 because each, no, no, you're wearing a mask. you got a full-face helmet on, but oh, it's already true. equipped yeah, okay. for that. But it was bizarre um, because all of the drivers were wearing masks in the pits prior to getting in, which was bizarre. Uh, yes, of course you're going to see some changes in sports. I, I just, it'll be a question of for how long we see them yeah. because um, I think a lot of people are saying, look, I, I, let's go back to where we were as fast as we possibly can. However, however, uh, the XFL, for all of its failures as a football league, when especially back in 1990, I think it was, when it tried it for the first time, they allowed the TV broadcasters in particular, basically gave them carte blanche and said, you know what, do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. We don't care. And they, people thought some of the ideas when they first did it were absolutely bonkers. They had a guy dressed all in black with one of those steady cams running around on the field while the game was going on. Mm-hmm. And people thought, you're nuts. Now, he got out of the way before the game started, but like it was in the huddle and stuff. Well, you know what? They did four or five things among all the things they tried. That Halfway through that season, the NFL started looking and saying, yeah. wait a second. There you go. That's kind of smart. And the CFL picked it up, too. Things when you, when you are forced into new possibilities and new ways of doing things, every once in a while you stumble on a few genius ideas. I think we're going to see exactly. a genius I gotta cut you off. version of this. I agree 100%. Got to cut you off there, Scott. We're out of time. Thank you so much, Scott Radley, uh, sports columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. And make sure you're listening tonight for the Scott Radley Show. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.